Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude and over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Okay, I am surprisingly really anxious to sit down and record this episode. Um, Yeah, I was actually up super late last night thinking about all of this stuff. And it's now uh, 1230 my time and I've spent the entire work day so far writing out my notes and my thoughts about this. Um, but I'm, so I, I feel compelled to share and I also feel really nervous. I don't know if you guys have read my latest blog post, um, finding peace amidst troll culture, but, um, I think I'm probably anxious about any reactivity to this piece. So I'm just going to start there and just be really extremely honest with you. Um, and to ask that you listen to all of this with uh, an open heart, perhaps, an open mind, maybe. So we're going to talk about intuitive fasting, and this is really more of an opinion piece. I polled everyone on Instagram to be like, hey, is this something that you want me to talk about, or are you just kind of over it? I was feeling a little bit fatigued by the whole thing, to be honest with you, but 80%. Um, said, yeah, please talk about it. So that's a whopping majority. So here's the deal. Dr. Will Cole, he's a functional medicine doc, uh, released a book called Intuitive Fasting. And it was released at the time of recording. It was released last week, um, two weeks ago at the, you know, when you're actually listening to this. Gwyneth Paltrow wrote the introduction She also featured him on Goop, and I believe Will Cole does work through Goop. Um, He is Gwyneth's functional medicine practitioner, so definitely in the limelight. And with the publication of this book, the internet broke. (laughs) Not really, but in my circle of the internet, in the um, intuitive eating, in the nutrition, in the functional medicine space. Uh, There was quite the kerfuffle on social media. And I just stuttered over that word because I thought it was kerfluffle. So I've been saying kerfluffle all along. And then when I was writing out notes, I realized that kerfluffle is not a real word. And kerfuffle is, but it's a lot harder to say. Anyway, complete and utter melee. People were taking hard stances and extremely vocal about it. So 
here's what this episode is not going to be. I am not going to take a hard stand for or against anything, and I'm not going to defend my position. Instead, because there's a lot of that out there already, okay? Instead, I'm going to ask bigger picture questions, questions about our collective reactivity to this. Like why were so many of us so triggered and so reactive in the nutrition space and beyond? And I want to attempt to understand what that means about us. And the only way I'm going to do that is by asking lots of questions and to try to utilize that reactivity to affect the change that we're looking for. Because listen, people aren't triggered and people don't react strongly to things unless they feel strongly to things. Unless that thing is sitting on top of a pain point or a big belief, right? And so how can we utilize this this big emotional reaction that many of us had? Now, I do want to say that if this is your very first or one of your first episodes with me, um, I think I would recommend listening to some other episodes first because this episode is perhaps not reflective of my entire body of work. And I would hate for you to get the wrong impression of me just based on this one hour um, because my my career has been 10 years long. So this is one snapshot into a 10-year career, right? Some quick background on me just in case you are new. I've been in the anti-diet culture world for over a decade. Um, I myself battled with eating disorders for 13 years. Around the age of 11, 12, I started to restrict my food. Um, That blossomed into full-blown anorexia and then eventually transitioned into um, bulimia for about seven or eight years. So I have my own uh, experience with a lot of disorder. And the work that I do as a nutritionist is under the lens or with the lens of restriction because despite the fact that I no longer work with eating disorders, I do see so much disordered eating patterns with my female clients. And so if you're not new here, you've heard me talk about this over and over and over again. Um, This episode isn't a reactive piece. I'm not reacting to anything, really. It's more of a reflective one. And you might walk away from this episode with more questions than answers. Uh, Again, these are going to be huge concepts to think about in our society at large and our social media culture, but also within ourselves and how these things might play out and show up for us. Um, I do, so full disclosure, I do have an opinion about intermittent fasting, and I've shared that pretty wildly, or I I meant to say widely, but I guess wildly would also fit. My opinion is based on working with thousands of women over the years and seeing hundreds of hormone labs. So in my practice, I see evidence of what fasting can do, which is why I typically don't recommend it for menstruating females. And I've even created some inflammatory posts about it, right? Where I was taking a hard stand. I have one on Instagram and it's just a text bubble that says, fasting is bleeping up your hormones. Insert F word there. Fasting is messing up your hormones. I'll keep it PG for the show. Um, But whenever I talk about fasting and my belief about fasting, I always am very conscious of posting disclaimers. 
So in this particular post, I noted that, hey, practitioners tend to create social media content based on what we see in clinic and in private practice. Our content is for most people, but of course, there will be exceptions, right? There's always space for N equals one here, meaning you can use yourself as your own experiment. I am all for it. So if, you're, if you practice intermittent fasting and you feel great and you have loads of energy and you have absolutely no complaints and you're on top of the world, then keep doing your thing. It is not up for me to tell you what you're doing is wrong or bad. It is not up for me to say that your lived experience isn't real, even as a clinician, even as somebody who's been doing this work for a long time. However, that's not usually who I see. So that's not really who I dictate my content for. I see women who are fasting because they think it's what they should be doing and they're struggling with poor exercise endurance or uncontrolled eating at night because they're restricting during the day. And so they feel as though they're binging at night and they go into self-flagellation mode. I have no willpower. I have no control. This is supposed to work for me. This works for everybody else. Why isn't it working for me, right? A lot of that type of thought patterns. Um, I see a lot of brain fog, concentration issues, low energy, irritability, a lot of mood disturbances when we fast, irregular cycles, or even loss of menses. Women just lose their period, These are all actually really super common. And at this point, I've seen hundreds of hormone labs, like I said, and the ones that are coming from menstruating folks who are intermittent fasting, they don't look awesome. They don't look awesome. And you can actually head to Instagram for examples of hormonal wonkiness that I tend to see with fasting. You look for any of my fasting posts, or you can even go into my highlights, hormones, because I talk a little bit about intermittent fasting there. My gripe is that while there is definitely tons of great research on the benefits of intermittent fasting, the research doesn't take into account the fact that many, many women have a history of restrictive eating patterns. So you pair that history of restriction with more restriction, right? You're restricting your food timing. And then especially if you're layering on any type of high intensity interval training and exercise on top of it, and then your hormones start bugging out, they bugging out, they bugging out, they bugging out, out, out. This is what I'm seeing in my practice, so this is what I tend to focus my discussion around, okay? However, I did do an entire episode on intermittent fasting. In fact, I did two episodes, and then we put them together in one mega-sode, episode 135, and that is where I break down the research, the potential benefits, the potential drawbacks, the pros and the cons of fasting, who it's for, who it's not for, who should attempt it, who should avoid it, All of that I've thoroughly packed in for you. So if you landed on this episode hoping to learn more about fasting, this isn't going to be the episode. I already did that. So 135, head there first probably, and then this might be a follow-up episode for you to listen to. What we're going to talk about today after my long-winded intro, because that's my steez, why people are so up in arms about this book. Why is one book causing such a rift? And I think, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm very thirsty. Um, so I'm taking a lot of sips of water. So I have to apologize for that. So I think the biggest place is to start is with that a lot of folks feel like the term intuitive was hijacked. Intuitive eating 
is a framework and it's a trademarked title. Um, it's a framework created by Evelyn Tribble and Elise Raish. Um, I don't know if I'm saying her last name right, so forgive me. It, the original publication was in 1995. I checked my copy and it's from 2003. It is so yellow. It's so old. It's yellow. The pages are yellow. But the point is it's been around for a hot minute. Um, there's, I, I feel my, um, my perception is that there's been a significant increase in intuitive eating. And you even see uh, big influencers and bloggers who are once really rooted in one type of eating are now shifting over. And by type of eating, I mean like AIP or paleo, they're starting to shift over into the intuitive eating space, which I think is really cool. And it's been so uh, cool to witness that, to witness that evolution, right? Um, but the point is, is that it's, it's, it's not new. Um, and this framework has been used for eating disorder recovery. So that's why I originally published the, or excuse me, purchased the book. And I even started working with an intuitive eating dietitian. Full disclosure, ultimately it wasn't the path for my recovery. My recovery looked really, um, very different than sort of traditional recovery. I have not actually addressed it on the show before, but I could, if there was interest there. Um, however, it's a wonderful tool that has helped so many people. So it seemed like the title intuitive fasting was kind of hijacking this intuitive eating concept. Now the book was also released during National Eating Disorders Awareness Week, which is extremely tone deaf in poor form, in my opinion and in many other people's opinion too, particularly because there's been a massive uptick in eating disorders over the past year. Uh, we know that eating disorders are a mental health issue, and we know that mental health has been really, um, has really taken a hit over the past year with everything that we've been facing. And so there's been this uptick in eating disorder behavior and um, uh, com people coming out of remission and all sorts of things. So it just it just seemed really tone deaf. Like, hey, read the room. You know, especially if you're going to co-opt and hijack the hijack this this terminology, it just seemed really yucky, for lack of a better term, to release it on uh, on this week that was supposed to be um, sort of. Uh, paying, you know, giving good attention to the fact that need, eating disorders are a national crisis, right? Um, ultimately, I think where people are netting out is that this is just another diet book masquerading as wellness. And it's almost like force feeding us restriction, but telling us it's not restriction. So in the forward, Gwyneth Paltrow says, this book is not dogma. It will not punish you or restrict you. I mean... <laughs> Just because you say it doesn't make it so. The Ketotarian approach. So I have uh, Will Cole's, I think it was his first book or one of his books called Ketotarian. Uh, I'm like reaching for it because it's on the corner of my desk. But um, I can't find the exact title. Sorry, I can't reach the book. Um, but I think it's Ketotarian. Anyway, it's I bought it because I was curious about it. Um, I don't like to formulate a p strong opinions on something unless I've actually like you know read the book, which is a whole other issue. There's like we'll talk about the reviews that people left for the book, and it's like people didn't even read the book, but they had this like volatile 
visceral reaction to it, which I think is a little bit, I don't know, off kilter. Um, however, the ketotarian approach, it's really like keto plant-based. So when you combine that with fasting, at its very core, it is a restrictive plan, right? Because you're reducing carbohydrates. That's what ketogenic diet is. You're reducing animal proteins in a plant-based approach. He does include seafood and eggs, uh, but, but that's kind of it in terms of animal proteins. And you're reducing your eating window in this new approach with fasting. So you're layering on keto, a plant-based diet, and fasting. So that's three restrictive food templates all heaped on top of one another. So there's real potential for super duper restriction. And I guess that's my point is like, just because you say it doesn't make it so. You can tell us it's not restrictive, but it is, it really does create the framework for a a tremendous amount of restriction. And the irony of that is that I've actually always really appreciated Will Cole's approach to fasting for women. He has I, I don't know if I got this from his book or from a blog that he wrote, but he talks about why it's not really a great idea for a woman to approach fasting like a man. So to just run into like a 16-8 plan is not great. So he talks about like a staggered approach and kind of like feeling your way into it and starting with 12 hours and seeing how you do and not fasting on consecutive days. And so I've always appreciated him talking about it because listen, if somebody wants to fast, they're going to fast even though people are telling them it's bad. You know, like they're going to find a way to do it. So he kind of met people where they're at and saying, okay, I hear that you want to fast. Here's that healthier way to approach it. And I think that that whole thing is just being overlooked because of the title. And in my title, the the title, in my opinion, I'm sorry, the title I do feel was poor form. It, we could have just titled it just another book about fasting or even a different approach to fasting. I think using intuitive in the title felt felt not great, um, especially because intuitive eating is very entrenched in the body positive movement. It's aligned with the Hayes movement, health at every size. It's weight inclusive. So to utilize the term intuitive in in combination with a food plan that promotes restriction in weight loss tactics defeats the purpose of the original framework. And I think at the core of it, that's where people were having a big issue with, right? There was a misstep there. And if this um, is a little bit new to you, these concepts are new to you, I recommend, we covered this like way back in the day, episode 43. Um, So a couple of years ago, I interviewed Chrissy King, and the podcast is entitled Intersectional Feminism in the Co-Opting of Movements. And so Chrissy discussed how thin white women have really co-opted the body positive movement. I, in my estimation, that episode is a must listen. So if you haven't listened, check it out. Um, If you have listened, maybe go back and check it out because it was that good. Um, anyway, I feel as though, and so I think, I think this is just highlighting this, this, you know, thin white wellness are, is co-opting these big movements that were not created for thin white wellness. Um, and I think that Gwyneth Paltrow has kind of become the face of whitewashed, privileged wellness. She is sort of the epitome of everything that our patriarchal, fat-phobic, 
white supremacist society has told us to be. She's cisgendered, straight, white, and thin, and she's rich. And she's built an entire empire around her wellness and her thinness. So it's a lot to take in, right? And that's, I think, why some, some people are being so triggered. Now, again, if everything I just said is kind of brand new for you, I'm going to link it to an article that I thought was really well done. Um, it's uh, on Forbes, and it's the Unplug Collective explores how diet culture is rooted in anti-blackness. How diet culture is rooted in anti-blackness. And I'm going to share uh, a quote from Amanda Taylor, who's part of the Unplug Collective. I don't know if you guys can hear that right now. We are in the midst of a ferocious windstorm, and it's very loud. Hopefully, my mic isn't picking it up, so it's not too distracting. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you some of Amanda's words from this article. She said, I wanted to create a world where everyone can heal, to create a world where we are all seen equally. It means abolishing diet culture. It means abolishing this idea that restriction is a reward or restriction is a good thing or punishment is a good thing. And so I think that's where white supremacy comes in. First of all, this idea that we all need to be a certain standard that is completely rooted in white supremacy, that we all need to aim to be this model or this one ideal of ourselves. It has become more apparent now, especially with conversations about colorism and racism, where there was a point where this idea that there's one standard of skin tone or this one standard of beauty in terms of your features. And we're now all pushing back and saying everyone is different. Everyone has a different skin tone. Everyone has a different hair type. Everyone has different features. And regardless of your internalized idea of beauty, that is a standard of white supremacy. And we're all trying to unlearn that. And then Amanda, she goes on to talk about two different voices. And I think we can all relate to this. The one that says, this is the standard and this is what I've been taught. And this is the truth. Everyone has different skin tones and different things that we need to appreciate about their appearance. And so I think trying to build those two layers as well for body types by saying everyone has different bodies, not just size-based, but shape height, all of the things. It's another part of our physical appearance that has been standardized. And that standard is super detrimental for people who are not a part of that standard and even people who are. Because as with any standard, if it's not maintained, then the people who are not a part of that standard are demonized or are villainized or are treated as less than that standard. And that is white supremacy in a nutshell, you know? So I thought that, that that quote really encapsulated so beautifully this concept of how diet culture is rooted in white supremacy. So if that's a new concept to you, I would check out some different resources. A good one to check out is Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia by Sabrina Strings. So that's a book that um, was released I think last year, 2019, maybe. Anyway, really good resource. But back to Gwyneth and to this concept that white supremacist, white supremacist diet culture standards are harmful to even the people who are part of the standard because they must maintain that standard. They're expected to maintain that standard in order to fit into the culture. And now I am 
of course, not even remotely for a second suggesting that Gwyneth Paltrow's lived experience is the same as a Black woman or a person of color or any marginalized person, but instead trying to emphasize this this point in that in the article that white supremacist fat phobic diet culture is toxic. Everyone loses. It is toxic. Gwyneth is very clearly constantly on the quest for a lean, fit, and healthy body, and she shares it with all of us, which emphasizes the indoctrination that we've all received, which is leanness is the ideal. And she herself is beholden to that very same ideal, particularly as somebody in the public eye. So some questions to ponder, and I'm not I'm just asking the questions. I'm just floating them out there versus suggesting that I have the answer because I do not. Um, Does this make Gwyneth Paltrow wrong or bad or harmful? Maybe the answer is yes, because she profits and benefits from and, and even arguably upholds these beauty standards and these ideals. Or maybe she's struggling with the very same fears around illness and staying healthy and weight gain and aging that we all are. And she's simply trying to find solution to those fears and to share them. Clearly, there's a market for it. Clearly, there is. And that's just a very different perspective. I guess the question that I keep coming back to myself is, is Gwyneth Paltrow at the helm? Or is she just sitting in the same diet culture boat with all the rest of us. It is not easy being a woman in the public eye from what I can gather. You know, this is a conversation that I have with my husband all the time in in regards to celebrities, because if female celebrities actually show signs of aging or acne or weight gain or body change, basically if they show their humanness, then they lose work. That's how it happens. That's how it works. But if they get work done, to sort of correct those human qualities like aging naturally. Everyone talks about how they're not aging naturally or gracefully. And every single time I think about a female celebrity, I'm just like, geez, it really is a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And so I do have compassion for celebrities for this exact reason. I think it's very easy to talk about all of the reasons that celebrities are horrible or wrong. And I'm just like, gosh, that that actually looks like a lot of pressure. Uh, and I just feel that the, the compassion piece has perhaps gone out the window in our current climate of all of us being so hyper-reactive. I mean, have we completely lost the ability to honor the humanness in all of us and to say like, yeah, they're probably going through some struggles of their own. And I guess if we're, we're going to choose, if where you net out with that question is yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow sucks. She's problematic. If we're going to choose to point the finger at her, must we also look to every other person upholding and profiting off of these ideals, right? Why Gwyneth and not somebody else, right? Kate Hudson took a Weight Watchers sponsorship, and I, I certainly did not hear nearly as much commotion about that as I do about like pretty much every single time Gwyneth opens her her mouth, this this Gwyneth thing. I had somebody in my DMs who said Gwyneth Paltrow should never be giving health advice. And absolutely, she's not a healthcare provider. She got a lot of flack for sharing her. She has put herself in the category of long hauler 
COVID. So she got COVID and she's still struggling to recovery or to recover. And she said that her recovery was helped by kombucha, kimchi, and fasting. And so people were like, yo, this is a really oversimplified solution to a really complex situation. And I get why people were pissed about that. But I guess my question is, would she be sharing this if there wasn't a demand for it? So do we blame the individual who's giving out the dumb advice? Or do we look at the collective and say, why are we asking celebrities for health advice? Because here's the harsh truth that I don't really see a lot of people talking about. We've all colluded in this. We're people looking to celebrities and influencers looking to people who have the aesthetic and quite frankly, the life that we want. And we're asking them, tell me what you do. Tell me what you're doing. How are you eating? How do you work out? Teach me your ways. If this wasn't true, then wellness influencers wouldn't be a thing, right? Think about it. How many wellness influencers do you follow? How many of them have the actual appropriate education and clinical experience to talk about and teach about nutrition and health? Probably not a lot, and yet they still have massive audiences. Why do you think Kate Hudson is endorsed by Weight Watchers and shares food tips? Because there's a demand for it. And we have to ask, who's creating that demand? So 15 years into this, you know, 15 years into this, I started studying dietetics in uh, 2006, 2007. These are the type of questions that I ask myself, and these are the type of things that I think about. And like I said, this episode is probably going to present more head scratching and more questions than answers, but I want to share some, like a peek into my brain. I think it's just so much easier to blame the individual than it is to question the culture. And I also can't bring up Gwyneth without talking about our sick and twisted cultural fascination with watching a woman fall from grace. There are so many pop culture examples of this, Britney Spears being at the, the top of my mind, you know, the, the first one that comes to mind, but there's many examples of it. Listen, we love a good smear campaign. We love to watch a woman dragged. It's sick. Uh, and there's even blogs exploring this very same thing. Gwyneth Paltrow is not a loved woman. She is not a beloved woman by many people. So there's a blog post entitled, Why Do So Many People Hate Gwyneth Paltrow? And do you want to know one of the reasons that this blog post put together for us? It's because she appears incredibly full of herself. She appears incredibly full of herself. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Our society does not do well with a woman who loves herself. Oh, no, 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 no. You seem too confident. Let's tear you down. Let's tear you down a little bit. Let's take you down a couple pegs. That's what we love to do to a confident woman. So the fact that she appears incredibly full of herself, that's a valid reason for millions of people to hate her? Come on now. you got to do better than that. There's another blog entitled The Unbearable wrongness of Gwyneth Paltrow. This one, when I saw this, this one made me feel physically sick to my stomach. Calling the existence of a human being wrong is fucking wrong. I'm sorry if there's little ears listening, but it's wrong and it deserved an F word. 
and maybe it's because of this that I feel almost protective over Gwyneth Paltrow because it like just it's like my my overall protection for women in general. I don't know. Um, there is a specific example that I want to uh, bring to bring to mind um, or bring to light. Last year ish, there was the Goop Netflix uh, series. I don't know if any of you 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 guys saw it or you caught wind of it. Um, but it got a lot of bad press and it was just, um, Gwyneth and Goop exploring different paths to healing and like different sort of alternative healing practices. So Wim Hof was on there. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, medicinal mushrooms, like microdosing with mushrooms was another one. I can't think of the other, other examples. Um, I, have to so I watched it and I loved it and what you need to understand is some context it, that at that time I was really uh, really not okay um, I was experiencing symptoms of disease progression so for those of you who don't know six years ago I was d- diagnosed with scleroderma systemic sclerosis and um, it can get really bad so the the man the the manifestations of this illness can be hardened skin, but also harden, um, uh, um, why can't organs? I could not think of that word. So, um, some, you can have a lot of issues with your lungs, uh, with your heart, uh, with your kidneys, and I'm supposed to get annual scans every year. That's what annual means. (laughs) Um, and I hadn't in two years. And I was, like I said, experiencing some symptoms that were really scary um, and that could potentially have indicated disease progression, which is a very scary thing because this this illness can kill you. Um, and so I had to, I scheduled my exams and I had to wait for two months. So in those two months, what was really important to me was to surround myself with extremely positive messaging about healing. Uh, This is not my first rodeo with uh, a a health crisis or an illness scare. And so this is what I have to do to get through it, is to bathe myself in messages that healing is available to me and to not take that off the table for myself. And what I found was that this Goop Netflix special was extremely supportive and cathartic for me at that time because we were just talking about different types of healing. And like I said, I needed to wash myself in those messages. So I was extremely grateful for the timing of that special and for it to land in my lap. And I tell you that to explain this next point. Um, this next idea that was presented to me I, uh, this summer, I took a course and it's called Foundations of Social Justice, and it's led by Dr. T. Williams. I will link to his website and to his work. Phenomenal. I could not recommend his work enough. He is phenomenal. And I highly recommend taking any course you can with him and learning from him in any way. But one of the things we were talking about in social justice, in one of the things that he presented is that he's like, there's a lot of different opinions out there about how to be an activist and how to do this social justice work. And a lot of those opinions conflict with one another. So what you need to do, and I'm totally paraphrasing his words here, what you need to do is take all of that information in, but then have the ability to run it through your own filters and to think critically about it. 
and to decide for yourself how you feel and what is true for you and what is right for you. And that has been such a it's 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 been a concept that has infused itself into all aspects of my life. And that's kind of what I did here is that how do I there's a lot of really nasty negative things being said about Gwyneth Paltrow and her business. And yet here I am really benefiting from the work that she's doing. So I had to run that through my own filters to figure out how I felt about it. And I had a question, do I throw out all of the ways in which her work has helped me because the current zeitgeist is everyone should hate Gwyneth? Again, rhetorical question, but these are the questions I ask myself. And I think this this is relevant now to all of the talking heads yelling, this is bad, this is wrong. Can we stop for a minute and run things through our own filters? This Asking these questions is one of the ways that I continue to be anchored in my own truth versus being swept up by popular opinion. This is how I use my own critical thinking, use my own intuition, if you will, right? That intuition and that critical thinking piece is almost becoming a lost art. So as I mentioned before, when I talk about intermittent fasting, admittedly, it's usually to highlight the downsides of it. And it's not because I have something against intermittent fasting or fasting, or I don't think that anyone should do it. I don't think it should be off the table for anyone. It's just because that it's so popular that when something gets so popular, when everyone's talking about something, what happens is that everyone thinks that they should be doing it. And I was reading through in all of this internet kerfuffle, <laughs> I was reading through some comments in posts. I find that like the comment sections, you can just learn so much about things and about like the psyche of people. And one woman said, I was deep into fasting culture for a couple of years. And I was like, oh man, doesn't that acknowledge that this fasting is a culture? And it's not just fasting, it's any camp, it's any food camp can become its own culture. I had a client recently tell me that she lost a friend because she stopped in, uh, intermittent fasting. She stopped intermittent fasting. Her friend was so upset about it that they that their relationship dissolved. I mean, come on. And I've heard this quite a bit with um, with Isagenix, this company that utilizes fasting principles. You you fast for one day a week, and I've been told by many different people that it has this almost like cultish following. And if you stop, you are cast out, right? So this is happening in different pockets of the nutrition space. And when something shifts from a practical eating plan, and yes, there is practicality with intermittent fasting. And I talked about the therapeutic benefits in that episode 135. But when it shifts from practicality into dogma or religiosity, that's when problems can occur. Because all nuance, all context, all reason, all common sense goes flying out the window. I try my best to be a voice of reason, to kind of counteract all the nonsensical stuff we hear. And that's why when everyone's talking about why fasting is so great, you'll often hear me say, yeah, but. 
Because the truth is, fasting is not appropriate for all. It is not the panacea everyone wants it to be. You know, and I, I use actual lab examples on Instagram to show the negative hormonal effects. But fasting isn't bad. Being curious about fasting, trying fasting, or having a fasting practice doesn't, make that you're, doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong, right? And also, intermittent fasting isn't a good idea for a lot of people. In the field of nutrition, we have to make space for all truths to coexist. And this is the problem with dogma. This is the problem with religiosity. This is the problem with creating a culture or a you know, a cult-like following around things and saying, this is the one true way. It's not. It never is. It is not an either-or situation. With nutrition, it's always an and also. It is true that intermittent fasting is beneficial. And also, it is true that intermittent fasting can be detrimental. Both truths can coexist, right? Let's take a quick break as a way to Shout out and thank our show sponsors who make this show possible. In the past three and a half years of this podcast, my goal has remained the same, to get zero cost to consumer, that's you, high quality, well-researched, well-thought-out nutrition and health information and resources. And the show sponsors allows me to dedicate one workday every week into producing this show for all of you And as you know, I would never throw anything in front of you that I wasn't actively using myself. Organifi is so great for the busy person who's looking to get a lot more whole foods nutrition into their pie hole, but doesn't have as much time. So go to Organifi's website, use the code FUNK, you save 20%. And then we also have BioCult, who is my probiotic of choice. It's really, really affordable, high-quality, well-researched probiotic. So if you're looking to support your gut, your overall immune system, your inflammation, this is the probiotic for you. You can also save 20% using code FUNK20. And... All of those links are available in the show notes. So I highly recommend you check out both of those companies, both of those products. These uh, companies are near and dear to my heart. And like I said, they make this show possible. So thank you, Organifi. Thank you, BioCult. We appreciate you. So this is a point that I continue to drive home. If we are, we're all absolutely inundated with information about food and nutrition, right? And we all have, there's a lot of talking heads shouting from the rooftops. You know, admittedly, I'm probably one of them too, right? I will own up to that. But we all individually have to have some way to self-audit to determine what's appropriate for us. We have to build up some sort of internal checks and balances to run this information through ourselves and to have the ability to assess, does this actually apply to me? This information that's coming at me, does it apply to me? Is it right for me? Is this information that I should take or is this information that I should leave? And it's this self-auditing piece that many of us lack. I, I saw a post that said, fasting is not intuitive, period. And I actually probably disagree with that. I think eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full is pretty darn intuitive. As a concept, 
I don't reject the idea of intuitive fasting. However, 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 as a whole, we are pretty far removed from our intuition. We're pretty out of touch with our body's communication. We've been teaching ourselves how to turn it off for most of our lives. Janine Roth, who has been in the uh, eating disorder world for many, many decades, she says that the problem isn't that we have bodies. The problem is that we're not living in them. We want to learn to have different bodies, not occupy the ones we have now, right? So we're just, we want to just skip over the, we want to say what I'm doing is intuitive. I am intuitive fasting, but we want to skip over the process of learning how to get in touch with and hone our intuition. And we want to get right to the fasting. And I think that's where the problem lies. And that's not really being super talked about. Um, In my carb compatibility project, Every week, there is a module talking about how to hone your intuition and talking how to, about how to bring mindfulness front and center as a practice. And one of the things that I say is that you can't just walk into the kitchen and turn on your intuition. It's not a light switch. If you're not practicing intuition throughout the rest of your life, how do you expect to utilize it when it comes to your food, into your eating? It just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Um, this is another quote. Oops, this is another quote from Janine Roth in her book *Woman, Food, and God*. She wrote, "The most difficult part of teaching people to respect and to listen to their bodies is overcoming their conviction that there is some there's nothing to respect. They can't find any place in them that is whole or intact." And so when they hear me say, relax, when they hear me say, trust yourself, they feel as if I'm asking them to throw themselves to the wolves, banishing them to the wild and ferocious brokenness. The possibility that there is a place in them, in everyone, that is unbroken is so far-fetched. So yeah, we can't just be like, Here's this restrictive plan, but just be intuitive about it, man. Just use your intuition. We have to teach people, right? Gwyneth Paltrow says in the introduction, if there's anything difficult in these pages, it is Will's request that you be willing to listen to yourself, to your own body, to your own intuition. But how do we do that? And I think that's the problem with slapping the term intuitive onto something, but then not teaching us how to access our own intuition. And you know, quite frankly, this is perhaps some of the limitations with intuitive eating. Intuitive eating doesn't work for everyone. If you can't get in touch with your own intuition, intuitive eating probably isn't going to work. Fortunately, intuitive eating as a practice does provide the framework and structure to explore some of that. One other resource I'll throw out to you is the book, The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. And there's this concept of embracing shame free inquiry. And I love that idea about giving ourselves space to inquire about our own beliefs about food, about our bodies, about ourselves, and to make those inquiries, those questions, not be rooted in shame. And I just feel like our current culture throws a lot of shame around and it throws a lot of shoulds around and it doesn't really make a whole lot of space for that shame-free inquiry. 
in my opinion. I, uh, a colleague of mine was like, she sent me a text and she's like, hey, have you seen the reviews for Will Cole's book? And so I went to Amazon and I even took a screenshot of the overall book review because it was like, there's two bars or there's five bars. You know, you can do um, one star, two stars, three stars, four stars, five stars. And there was like equal amounts of five star reviews as there was one star reviews. And there was literally nothing in the middle. And I was like, holy smokes, this picture, this screenshot is the encapsulation of the wellness world where people are like, pick your side. You are either for or you're against. There is no middle ground. There's no room for nuance. There's no room to hold space for multiple truths. And there's really not a whole lot of space for your own inner wisdom and your own intuition to come through. And this is personally, where I feel exhausted by the world of nutrition and the hyper-reactivity of people and the hard stances. When I was reading through the reviews, a couple jumped out at me. Um, one, one reviewer said, I would agree that if you have a history of disordered eating, fasting in general probably isn't for you and you shouldn't buy this book. And the author makes this clear. But I don't think that means it can't exist for all the other people who might benefit. And then somebody else said, in, in uh, sort of in contrast, in contrast to all the negative reviews, somebody else wrote, how mean to insult someone's work who has dedicated their life to trying to help people. If this isn't for you, then go elsewhere. And I just feel like that highlights our lack of ability to say, hey, not for me. Uh, it's like Amy Poehler quote when she's like, good for her, not for me. You know, that works for her. It doesn't need to be for me. But just because something's bad for me doesn't mean it has to be bad for her. Right? Right? Right. I got, this is no different than a DM I received last week with somebody telling me, uh, I, I said, I simply just said that um, I will no longer make space for trollish behavior um, on my page. So if you come at, at me in a purposely antagonistic way, I'm just going to delete you. I'm just going to delete the comment or uh, just block you, right? I mean, that's fair. That's a pretty standard practice. And I just announced that uh, because a lot of people follow me to, to hear and to learn how to set boundaries. I mean, I get, you know, tens of messages a week saying that. And so I was like, hey, here's something, here's something new that I'm implementing and it might work for you too. So think about implementing this in your own social media platform. And I had somebody respond to me saying, you are so stuck in the negative. You know, I'm really bummed out to see how negative you are all the time. And I was like, huh, that doesn't feel true to me, but that's her experience of me. And she also went on to say that she thinks that I should take a break from social media. And I was like, isn't that interesting? You're triggered by me. You're bothered by me. You feel entitled to tell me why my approach is wrong and bad, even though I didn't, I didn't ask for it. Um, and you're also saying that I should take myself off of Instagram, which is some, a platform that I really enjoy. I love Instagram, not going to lie. So I should deprive myself of Instagram, and I should also deprive 11 and a half thousand people from my content, you know, people that show up to my account to, to, to be able to interact with my content. So I should, I should pull it from myself. I should pull it from all of the followers over there just because you don't like my approach. That's weird. 
It's a weird idea, isn't it? The idea that we should remove something from everyone just because you don't like it or you don't agree with it. It's really quite absurd when you think about it, but I, I just see this playing out a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot lately. Um, some of the the reviews even just got like kind of mean and nasty. Once one said, he's not even a real doctor. And I just had to question like, is this where we are as a culture? We're gonna tear down someone's entire body of work just because we don't like a title or we don't agree with a premise. We're gonna tell them that their life work means nothing just because we disagree with their approach. I kind of feel like this attitude is actually quite harmful. In, in the dichotomous thinking in nutrition that it's either this or that, it's right or wrong, I feel like that can also be harmful. If the entire premise of intuitive eating is to allow people to access their own intuition in regards to food, how are we able to make space for this if we're telling people no, wrong, bad? It's like saying that your intuition is only right if it looks a certain way. I don't know. I am certainly not defending Will Cole. I'm not defending Gwyneth Paltrow. I do, I do, I don't know them personally, right? So it's not fair for me to argue for or against them. I do have a, a problem with the cultural phenomenon of like tearing a woman down. I, you know, I definitely do. I, I'm not defending this book. I'm not defending the title. None of that. None of that is true. But I am defending our right to choose our own path when it comes to our own healing and to trust that our bodies know the way and to acknowledge that this process takes time. It definitely takes more time than the four-week plan that the book outlines. But it's, it's a unique and it's an individual journey. In your path to remembering your wholeness, your path to healing might look a lot different than someone else's. And listen, the reason that I know for myself that intermittent fasting is a nightmare for my body is because I've tried it. Yeah, I've dabbled with intermittent fasting. So does the fact that I've experimented with intermittent fasting make me wrong? Does it make me a victim of diet culture? Does it mean that my eating disorder has returned? I don't think so. And quite frankly, I reject any narrative that tells me it is because I've honed the ability to tune out everyone else's opinions when it comes to my body, my food and my health decisions. And the way that I've done that is by asking these really unpopular questions, the questions that I'm bringing up in this show. And it's contemplating my own answers through dialoguing with other people, through journaling, through thinking on my own time. I commune with forces bigger than myself. I love to get out into nature for somebody else that might look like prayer. I meditate to create the mental white space to actually allow for the silence and to actually hear my intuition. And I pay attention when I'm triggered. And this is not easy work. And there's a lot of people being triggered by a lot of different things right now. And if this intuitive fasting book was one of those things for you, if you found yourself really reactive or triggered by this, I encourage you to ask yourself why, if you haven't done so already. Why 
do you think you reacted so viscerally? And I know some of you did because you showed up in my DMs, not in a, in a rude or a mean or an inappropriate way, but I could, I could tell by your reaction and the use of exclamation points and the hard, the hard stance that you were taking, I could tell that there was a big reaction to this. So question why? Are you triggered by seeing a thin, rich, white woman being the face of wellness? By being told by celebrities how to eat, how to live your life, despite the fact that your realities are so different? Were you triggered by seeing another restrictive diet? Are you burnt out by this? Are you over it? Were you upset by yet another plan telling you that eating is wrong? Are you upset by diet culture in general? By the idea that you are only worthy if you are thin? Were you triggered by seeing a lot of people telling you why fasting is so bad? Maybe you're fasting and you're like, I'm sick of hearing why this doesn't work or why this is wrong. It works for me. I'm over it. I'm mad. Listen, I'm not telling you you shouldn't have been reactive to this. I'm not telling you being triggered is bad. Quite the contrary. Understanding our triggers is really good, valuable information. It gives us insight into our own pain, into our own lives. It helps us see what is working and what is not. It helps us take stock of what we need to clean up and things we might need to change. I think it's so easy to point the blame and it's so much harder to ask ourselves where we can take responsibility for our own reactions. But I think that this is where the real work inside and outside begins. So if you're pissed, in what ways can you alchemize that anger to affect the change that you want to see? Again, I'm not saying our reactions or our anger isn't valid. I am all for righteous anger. Hello, have you met me? (laughs) I am a massively triggered person. It's why I've made advocating for women's health my life's work is because I've been so triggered and I've been so angry. So please don't misunderstand me. I don't think that it's wrong, right? Or if you are upset by this, just spend some time thinking about what that means for you. Is that going to change anything that you're doing in your life? Is that going to change how you're showing up in any way? So to wrap all of this up, I think fasting is not for everybody. And I've got the receipts all over the place for why I think that's true. Check them out. I think fasting is abused and can exacerbate or even elicit disordered eating behaviors. I think the release date and the title of the book were both poor form, in my opinion. And I think that depending on whose hands this book is in, it can cause harm or it could potentially help someone. So is the solution to pull this book or this concept out of everyone's hands, even if that means that the people who could benefit from it wouldn't get access to it? And again, I don't have the answer. This is just food for thought, pun intended. I can't pretend to have all the answers. I just want to continue to pose questions to think about here. And it's just an interesting place for me to be, to have one foot in the functional medicine world and one foot in the anti-diet world and to feel like I spend a lot of time discussing all the gray area in between because it's not always popular. And I realize that there's a lot of room for disagreement here. And I completely respect your right to your own opinions based on your own context and background. I honor that your reality might be completely different than mine. And I think that's okay. Like I said, in the field of nutrition, we have to make space 
for multiple truths. So the only thing that I ask is if, is if this angered you in any way, um, maybe sit with that anger versus react negatively to that anger. And um, please don't use this one hour snippet, this, this me like almost like journaling out my thoughts into a microphone, just posing questions, not saying I have the one solution. Uh, please don't let this overshadow all of the good work that I've done over the past decade in change. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.